Hello, welcome to Volts. I am your host, David Roberts. Today, I'm excited. I have as a guest, Will Wilkinson, who is currently a senior scholar at the Progressive Policy Institute, which is sure to be of some amusement to those who have followed Will's career, which began at the extremely different Cato Institute. So uh, rather than rather than try to explain Will's whole history, which we're going to get into, I'll just say that I've been reading Will's work for years now, God, it seems like forever, and uh, have been following his sort of intellectual and political journey that he's been on, which has kind of weirdly paralleled my own in a lot of ways. And so I thought I would talk with him about that journey and about sort of where he's ended up and how we move forward in American politics from now. So we're taking on <laughs> we're taking on all the big questions today. So thanks for coming, Will. I uh, appreciate you being on. Thanks, Dave. I'm ready. So um, before kind of getting into the meat of things, maybe just start by telling us a little bit about uh, sort of where you're from and how kind of the story of Will Wilkinson that ended with you being a young teenage Ayn Rand enthusiast maybe just start that what what's the what's the origin story well i, I was born the child of poor sharecroppers <laughs> and, and <laughs> just kidding uh, i think that's i the, got that the, reference that's yeah it's the it's the jerk um <laughs> uh, which describes me pretty well um <laughs> i uh, i grew up in uh, a little town in the middle of iowa marshalltown it's a small city it's of about 27,000 people. It's the county seat, so that makes it uh, locally kind of a big important. Deal. Yeah, and uh, it's exactly the same size as it was when I grew up there, which is interesting because the composition of the population is very different today. But I, I moved there when I was five because my dad had taken a job as the chief of police so my entire childhood, my dad was the chief of police in my hometown. My mother was a nurse for a large part of my childhood. She stayed at home, but she also worked as an obstetrics nurse and a you know home health nurse when I was a little bit older. Got two older sisters, you know, go Bobcats. I don't know. Like, what do you what do you want to, what do you want to know about my about it my childhood? So, it's so American. Well, it's a small town. The chief of police dad the nurse mom it's you know it's like i it, i really liked encyclopedia brown books because his dad was <laughs> the, the chief thing. of police and his mom was a nurse i i grew up in a john cougar mellencamp song i you know <laughs> i i even would you know suck down chili dogs outside the tasty freeze like for real so you know one of the things that i find interesting um and i've been for a long time working on a a book proposal uh, of a version of the this density divide paper that I wrote a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, I've been using my hometown as a model of things that have changed in the economy and how that's affected where people settle. And, you know, I didn't know when I was a kid that I was enjoying peak Marshalltown, Iowa. It was, <laughs> it was as good as it ever was in its existence, and it was as good as it was ever going to be. You know, it was a really healthy, vital little town with like small manufacturers. Uh, the schools were great, uh, you know, just like an incredibly active civic life, you know, great like little league, flag football, like all of that stuff. 
Um, and, and, you know, most of it's gone now. Um, All things that seem to be sort of dying out, uh, Across yeah. the country, not the little really. league baseball. That's not gone, but I mean, the the the, sm- <laughs> the most of the, most of the manufacturing is gone, and the you know average level of education in the town has gone down. Um, one of the main main you know employers was a place called Fisher Controls, makes like governors and valves, and they employed like a lot of engineers and a lot of lawyers and you know people like that. And they, you know, really downscaled their presence in Marshalltown. And we also used to have a big, like, Maytag, you know, air conditioning plant, a bunch of different stuff, which, you know, employ executives and employ lawyers and employ accountants and people with uh, college degrees. And most of that stuff is gone, along with the good manufacturing jobs for um, for people without college degrees. And so we've got mostly shitty manufacturing jobs in food processing, Um which is it's why gone, it's gone from a like a '90s John Cougar Mellencamp song to like a 2010s John Cougar Mellencamp song. Yeah, it's gotten in, it's gotten a little uh, it's gotten a little darker. But it was it was it was it was a lovely place to grow up, really. Um, and uh, and it was a conservative place. You know, m- you know my my dad is a cop. It's a conservative ish <laughs> uh, profession. Uh, my mother was actually the more political person, and she was very conservative. Um, for some time, she subscribed to the Phyllis Schlafly oh, Eagle no. Forum newsletter, and that was just kind of like background in my yeah. in my childhood. It's not like our family was very political. My my dad was one of those old fashioned public servants who thought it was extremely untoward to ever express a political opinion. Um, because his job was to, you know, look after the safety and security of the whole town and everybody needs to believe that you're working for them and you can't take sides, right? Like, so he wouldn't even tell us what his political opinions were at like the kitchen table. Um, funny. Yeah. And I think that kind of ethos, it really has changed, um, in law enforcement. To say the least. Well, let's, let's start both of us. Um, you, uh, you know, have told this story before you were sort of, um, enthusiastic libertarian as a as a teen and ended up entering the professional libertarian world i also had a a brief period of enthusiastic uh ayn rand <laughs> enthusiasm and libertarianism and i wanted to you know we're going to talk about how we how you know you've moved past that but i want to just take a moment to sort of take seriously what it is about libertarianism that attracts a certain type of young man <laughs> like like we were mostly men mostly white not exclusively um what it let's, let's take a moment to take the attraction seriously like what was it about it that you think clicked so hard for you and and made such sense for you at that moment you know it's a really kind of hard to say exactly what it is and i'm very wary about the fidelity of memory uh so but what i remember um it's actually kind of weird like how i ended up being a libertarian i i grew up a member of the reorganized church of jesus christ of latter-day saints which is a a, a sect of mormonism um i won't explain that unless you want it explained um and and you know i went to church camp every summer for several weeks and 
you know, I've always been a weird person. I, you know, always been a bit of a free thinker. And one day at campfire, like, you know, you'd sing all the campfire songs. You sing these silly songs at first and then it gets, you know, like you get into the more serious songs, you know, you do Kumbaya and all that shit. And, and, and then, you know, campers are invited to get up and give testimonies. And mostly you get up and talk about how God is awesome and how your life has been touched and blessed and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the RLDS, they're now known as the community Christ. They're not, they're not community of Christ. They're not evangelical, you know, praise Jesus, speaking in tongues sort of things. Like it's actually pretty sedate. Um, and you know, people would give their testimonies and I got up one day, like I felt, you know, I, I was, I love singing with a bunch of people. <laughs> like, like that, that's what I miss most about church. It's I just, the best part of church. I just, I mean, I love it. I find it so nourishing to the soul. I, that is probably one of the reasons why I'm desiccated and bitter. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like we'd sung, you know, all the all the sweet campfire songs, and I was filled with the spirit of love and community and I got up and I, cause I really wanted to tell people how much I, I like loved them. And I got up and said, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't really know about this God stuff, but I love all of you guys. I think this is great. Um, <laughs> it's the secular humanist credo. You just yeah, keep, yeah, came out. Yeah. You know, like I, and, and you know, it, I, I, my mother was my Sunday school teacher and <laughs> And and the, the the funny like I don't know what it is in my personality. I've got a a weird combination of 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 just rigorous logic, you know, just like this kind of relentless rationality about like does this make sense, mm-hmm. and also this drive to please and to be, um, you know, a good trooper for the cause. Um, and so I like I legitimately wanted to be like the best, you know, quasi-Mormon that I could possibly be. <laughs> and so and my mother would be teaching me the Bible or the Book of Mormon, and I would just relentlessly cross-examine her about like like, okay, so if this happened, then then it's like, you know, and, and, and you know, things don't make sense. And I would like end up cornering her on accident because I was just inquiring, <laughs> uh, like, like, how does this make sense? And she'd end up crying um, because oh she, my God. she and, and then I would feel so terrible because that wasn't. <laughs> um, but but, the, but but that kind of you know instinct came out in that in that campfire. And and the funny thing that came of that was like after you know the next day, uh, one of the counselors, you know, some middle aged dude wearing you know sandals with socks came up to me and said, hey, you know, Bill. I went by Bill. And he's like, you know, like, I think there's this book you'd really like. And I was like, yeah? And he's like, yeah, it's called Atlas Shrugged by Ann Rand. Oh, my God. And your your quasi-Mormon camp counselors turned you on to Ayn Rand? Yeah, yeah. And he was saying wow. it kind of conspiratorially, and I, like, didn't really know why. But I was like, oh, okay. Um, so, like, that summer, I, this was, I was maybe 15 or 16, um, I picked up. Atlas Shrugged, um, and, you know, it's the fattest book I, like, think I'd ever picked up. It's huge, like, 1,200 pages or something like that. And, you know, I dipped into it, and I was like, oh, this is a slog, uh, and just set it aside. And then, so, like, fast forward a couple of years, I, after my freshman year in college at the University of Northern Iowa, um, I ended up being a tour guide at the Joseph Smith Historic Center in Nauvoo, Illinois, giving tours of Joseph Smith's house, um, and 
and I was like, oh, like this is going to be a long summer. Like there's nothing in Nauvoo, Illinois. It's not really a town. It's like this abandoned, you know, it's like this kind of this ghost town. Uh, all these Mormons live there and they left. And there's a big historic site. Um, and I was like, this is going to be boring. I need to bring the, bring the biggest book I've got. So I brought Atlas Shrugged <laughs> to read with me while I'm giving tours of Joseph Smith's house. And I spent all summer reading it. I was like, like you have to wait a long time, you know, when you're – a, a tour guide, you know, so I'd, you know, you'd get the first shift and you'd open up the the visitor center and you'd kick back at the desk and, you know, it might be an hour, two hours before anybody comes in. So you'd sit back and read your novel. Um, and, 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 I, and then I, I was riveted by it. I got totally got into it. Um, I decided I didn't believe in God by the end of the, <laughs> by the end of the book, by the, by, by the end of the book, by the end, you know, and the thing is like, I, I was clearly, I was never going to really believe in God. Like, like it was just, I just don't have yeah. the the God gene, um, and 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 but what I I what I I went back to college for my sophomore year, ended up reading The Fountainhead and everything else, and I, The Fountainhead really resonated with me. And you know what it was? The thing that was really captivating to me um, was was the critique of altruism, um, mm. believe it or not, because my church. Um, it is this like really like sweet-hearted cosmopolitan internationalist you know like um you know all humans are one and right. and in this kind of you know it's vaguely social justice even when i was a kid it's like a really liberal form of mormonism comparatively and but like everything is about service everything is about doing things for other people um and and in my midwestern milieu and in part of that you know, that overall kind of service Christianity, um, you know, you're not supposed to stick your head up. You're not supposed to, um, you know, you don't want to look like you've got a big head or you're better than other people or, you know, right. my, my, my you know, dad would always say, you know, don't, you know, don't get too big for your britches, right? Like that kind of thing. And, and, and what I found in Ayn Rand was like permission to be awesome, <laughs> right? That, that, that's really what, that's really what, I mean, it, I mean, and it excited me down to the core of my being, like, like, just like this, this argument, this justification for like, just fucking going for it. Like be like being the best version of yourself that you can be. And you don't have to fucking apologize to anybody. You don't have to justify it to anybody. You just, you, you just be awesome. Right, like so you, it was kind you, of the uh, it was the Ubermensch aspects. You saw yourself. <laughs> yeah, funny. everybody who reads these things is like not like oh, I suddenly realized my cousin is extraordinary. <laughs> it's always oh wait, I'm extraordinary. At last, I can tell the world. Yeah, it's never I'm, you know, Eddie Willers, the like <laughs> the, 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 right. the kind of like pathetic viewpoint character, uh, <laughs> the, the, who's you know supposed to typify the average guy. Yeah, we're all John Galt's. Yeah, everybody, everybody who reads it's John Galt. Everybody who reads the Fountainhead <laughs> is is Howard Rourke. Um, but like, but like that, it was really transformative for me. Like, I, like I thought, I really did, th- and and I don't think in a bad way. Like, not in in a. Um, like, cause it's not really the Uber mention sort of stuff. Cause like, you know, I was never interested in like, you know, lording power over others or like, you know, crushing people underfoot on my ascent to, you know, the peaks of Promethean glory or whatever it was, it, it was just like, I, I, I just thought it was amazing that, that, that it, that it was okay. That if I wanted to just 
do it for myself. Like, like, like if I had aspiration, if I wanted to be a great artist, I, I should try to be a great artist. Right. Wow. That's a, that's a much more, um, noble set of motivations and resonances <laughs> than I, than I can claim. <laughs> but, I was about the same age and I believe it or not, uh, went straight to and it was it was one of the few times i was in my college library literally just browsing the philosophy section because i had mm -hmm. sort of like a young man's interest in philosophy Where and just stumbled college? upon uh this it, it's called Maryville college and sm it's small town tennessee it had okay. 800 students when i went there so there's no reason anyone ever would have heard of it but I, I stumbled across this book called uh, The Virtue of Selfishness. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. So I ended up reading all of Ayn Rand's nonfiction. I started with her nonfiction mm -hmm. and read all of her nonfiction. And, and even in my peak Rand enthusiasm, could never abide her fiction i still can't i still can't read a paragraph of it it's so bad but but i was like for me it was less like um you know i can be extraordinary i can do what i want i can don't have to apologize to him for me it's just like i can be left alone and not have you know like not mess with anybody else nobody messes with me like nobody owes me anything i don't owe anybody else anything i don't you know cuz i think like a certain kind of young man especially with that rationalist streak mm -hmm. that you're talking about you know that's often coupled with a certain degree of emotional illiteracy let's say or let's say the way young men are socialized in the in the US particularly yeah. uh, young men who are good at that kind of you know school worky rationalist stuff are often um you know raised a certain way not necessarily trained in emotional literacy and so the idea that like oh all that like there's these two languages you know there's the the language of propositions and reason and deduction which is very clean and makes sense and is all transparent and right there and then there's this other language of like human uh emotion and interaction that's sort of conducted in you know body language and implication yeah. and girl looks stuff. and glances girl stuff right then i was just i didn't i didn't speak that language i wasn't good at it i felt <clears throat> insecure when it was around like i never quite knew what was going on and this you know what ayn rand will tell you is just that that stuff is literally doesn't matter like only the clear rational only the the meaning of the word on the page the deduction it's all very clean and there's nothing hiding behind you there's nothing you're not getting right it's all right there in the open and it's just like right angles and clean lines and that's what drew me in is like yes this is like perfect clarity and it's a perfect clarity that tells me yes you can relax you're not missing a bunch of stuff you're not failing to discharge a bunch of obligations that you're only vaguely aware of right you're not failing on an emotional level all the time it's just, that stuff is distraction for weaker people you need to just like become of clear sharp diamond like mind and of course you know the young libertarian applies this diamond like rationalism generally to uh, 
other people's (laughs) words and actions (laughs) and maybe not quite so rigorously to their own, which of course is like another reason it's comfortable. But, but yeah, I was, I had no ambitions. My only ambition was to be left alone. And this is like permission to be left alone. I still remember like reading all these nonfiction books, getting totally zealous, you know, like only like a 18 year old college student can get zealous and then going and writing this religion <laughs> final mm-hmm. term paper <laughs> going in to talk to my professor just explaining to him with this sort of like super intense earnestness like why Ayn Rand was right and everything that he had devoted his life to studying and yeah. and practicing was just not only wrong and not only wrong but like wrong and sort of obvious trivially obvious ways it was just ridiculous right it was all just ridiculous guy i feel it's so embarrassing in retrospect yeah and you know when i think back on it like there's one of the things that i think is bullshit that people do like when you tell when you're like what's your intellectual journey they'll they'll tell you about arguments but like if you if you know anything about um how people come to have beliefs it doesn't have anything to do with arguments. I mean, like, it's just, it's, it's all identity. Um, it's all resonates with you, you know, emotionally. And, and so the, the, there's a special irony in getting attracted to kind of rationalist stuff um, for, you know, purely emotional identity-based reasons that you are completely blind to yourself. Yes, um, of course. And the promise is that you don't have to ever become aware of them because A equals A, right? Like at the bottom, at the root of it all, there's none. You, you don't have to examine your own motivations. It's all very clear from the from the foundation. You do have to examine your own motivations, David. Like, like Because <laughs> I mean, your emotions are uh, the output of sort of premises that you've accepted right like so so you're responsible for your emotional reactions for things um you have to make sure that you only believe rational things so that you have the right emotions um <laughs> if you have are having a wrong emotion that means you believe something wrong and so you have to figure out what yes. it is and imagine just ayn rand having these unwelcome emotions and just thinking like oh i've got to extirpate these by reasoning harder i've got to reason harder <laughs> Got to get, got to rid myself of these feelings. She's a fascinating kind of tragic person. You know what? I I will stand up for I for for Ayn Rand's like literary quality. It's just I don't think really? anybody knows how to judge her because she is a genre unto herself. Like clearly, there's something going on there that people find incredibly riveting and persuasive. Like she nails exactly what she says she's trying to do. She's trying to write didactic moral fiction that makes yeah. you believe something different. And she, I mean, she just crushes it. She like on her own standards. Um, but like aesthetically, I think they're kind of great, but like they're great in a way that nobody can recognize because one, she's Russian, um, you know, raised in Russia, educated in Russia. She's, uh, you know, grew up in the same like block as Vladimir Nabokov, right? Like, it's like same, same you sort of upper middle class, um, you know, Jewish milieu in Leningrad um, or, you know, St. Petersburg. And, <clears throat> and, and, you know, really well educated, um, comes to the U.S., wants to be a writer, um, gets into, you know, writes for Cecil B. DeMille, like writes a bunch of movie scripts and like completely internalizes a bunch of Hollywood standards, including like a certain kind of um, melodrama and kitsch. Yes. Capital R romanticism. I think that's what I, 
for some reason I didn't, I, I, that stuff is never really resonated with me. That sort of yeah. romantic melodrama. I can't. So it's I, a, com- a weird combination of Russian really f- philosophical fiction. Um, it, like there's a lot of like Dostoevsky and, and, you know, like that kind of stuff in, in, in her DNA. And, and it's like, but it's filtered through Hollywood and 1920s, 30s, um, old right politics, like anti New Deal politics, right? Like, and you, you throw that, all that stuff together. Um, it's just going to be a stew that's going to be repugnant to, <laughs> to, to, to like people with fine literary standards of the time or even now. But the thing is like, I don't think that's how you should – like I think they're amazing, weird books. Like like they're a kind of experimental fiction and I think they're like just incredibly successful. And I think people just don't give, you know, Ayn Rand enough credit as an artist because like they just – they don't want to judge her on the criteria that she ought to be judged on. But I think she's amazing. <laughs> well, that's that. That's sweet. I always, I, w- I would read that. I'm such a philistine. I read stuff like that, and I'm just like, just say, just tell me what you want to tell me. I'd like get rid of. I don't need the trains and the melodrama. I don't need a love story. Just tell me what you want to tell me. So that's why I went for the nonfiction. Of course, I have the same reaction anytime I read like almost any poetry or fiction. I'm well, just, I'm, I'm a huge I'm dummy, right? Because like all I really wanted was the trains and the, and, 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 and <laughs> like, you know, and the rape scenes, right? Like that's all, that's, that's all, well, that's all I was really into. And somehow I got seduced into um, uh, a comprehensive philosophy. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, which is what she was trying to do. Like, like I didn't, you know, like yeah, I didn't worked. want to, like, like clearly like I needed something else to believe in. I didn't want to be a, a certain kind of um, really lame uh, Mormon um, who doesn't even believe in the cool Mormon stuff, right? Like we didn't have like the you get your own planet and we didn't have the special underwear, any of that stuff. Yes. Like, so we I was get- raised Presbyterian, which is like if you can name a thing about Presbyterianism, <laughs> you're ahead of 99% of most people. Um, justification way, by like, faith. I guess. I guess. Isn't that the difference between like Presbyterians and Methodists? So, so we could talk about Ayn Rand all day, but, but, but we're we're falling behind. So let's, (laughs) let's move along to, so you, you, you know, you were like a full on Ayn Rand enthusiast, went Mm -hmm. into the kind of libertarian world, started working at Cato, um, which is, you know, especially at the time was sort of like the commanding heights of libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And then sort of over, time i don't know exactly how long it took but but you have described the process as basically like you were arguing against all these critiques of libertarianism over and over again and eventually just started thinking you know what these are pretty good critiques <laughs> so <laughs> describe describe for us the 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 intellectual process by which you were sort of uh rationally persuaded against a view which seems like a vanishingly rare thing these days so it's like yeah, an guess, exotic animal i want to hear all about it i guess i guess it doesn't happen a lot like i mean so the so the you know the backstory is you know i got super in ayn rand um i like i decided that being a philosopher was like the most important thing you could be because like you know 
making sure that people have correct premises is the only thing that's going to save our society. <laughs> B equals A, damn it. <laughs> you know, like, you know what? Like, I wouldn't mind if people would get around to like, you know, being like A equals A. I mean, that would be nice because like there's such a weird right now we're going through a, I mean, I've over the pandemic, it like made me like some of my Randian instincts came back in this weird way where I'm just like, reality is what it fucking is, dude. Like you, like, <laughs> you can't decide whether or not like a virus is contagious. Right. Like, 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 yeah, like, ah, it, it drove me crazy. Like, it, it, I think there is something healthy about that, uh, orientation toward yeah. the, you know, the, the existence of a reality that's external to you that can't be changed by what you think or say about it. Like, I, you know, like that's science needs that. Uh, we have to think that we're looking at something that's not us. It is helpful. Yeah. It's very helpful. Um, but like the, you know, I, I wanted to be a philosopher. So I, you know, I was an art major. I went to the university of Northern Iowa on a full tuition art scholarship. Um, and I, you know, I was, you know, the president of the thespian club and like I was an arts kid. Um, like I was the, you know, artsiest kid in my school and, you know, won all the, you know, those like awards and, and, and Ayn Rand drew me away from it. Um, which is tragic. I think it ruined my life. Uh, (laughs) seriously, like I, I should be a painter. Like, like I would be a happier person. Like if I just, if I lived in like rural Vermont and painted giant paintings in a barn, um, yeah. like I would be like living Sounds my best good. life. Um, instead I just like argue with assholes all day long <laughs> on Twitter and, and I'm like, this is, this is terrible. How did I get myself into it? And it's like Ayn Rand is how I get it. Yeah, but like, so I decided I, oh, I, I'm going to have to go to grad school. Um, so I, uh, you know, applied, uh, but, but I was a terrible student. I like had like a 2.9 GPA at the university, like the third best public university in Iowa, right? Like I, I couldn't get in, like I, I couldn't get into the university of Iowa. Um, and, and I, which is where I tried first and, and I heard at the time there was this, you know, this dude, Brian Leiter was writing this, like, I guess he still does it. Like rankings of philosophy programs and i learned that one of the best terminal ma programs was in dekalb illinois at northern illinois university so i applied there um funny i got a terminal ma too i also didn't get into there but like i just decided (laughs) like like fuck it man i'm just doing this right like and so i just moved to dekalb illinois like enrolled at niu as a like you can just they'll take your money if you just want to be like a like a, as a you know graduate student at large or whatever and oh, funny. and just took philosophy classes as if I was a grad student <laughs> um and and uh and that worked like like um the next year I got accepted to the program you know with you know full funding and everything like that um and uh and you know, it was a great program. I did well and then ended up going to the University of Maryland for my PhD program. And over all this time, you know, I was like, you know, just a really zealous libertarian objectivist. Um, you know, I had developed this big social network um, of objectivist friends in the early days of the internet. I was on a bunch of, you know, email lists, um, Jimmy Wales um, of mm. Wikipedia fame, the guys who started Wikipedia, you know, Jimbo Wales and, and Larry Sanger um, were just part of this milieu. I, you know, would meet them at the summer seminars for the Institute for Objectivist Studies. And, you know, and, and, and all my friends were like friends from the internet. Um, and they were like objectivist friends. And a lot of them are still my friends. Um, like 
some of my best friends are those people who are also not objectivists anymore. But like, so that's where my heart was socially. Um, but like, you know, I'm in all of a sudden in real philosophy grad school and I'm, you know, getting hit with stuff left and right. Now, the thing is like philosophy, moral philosophy and uh, political philosophy wasn't what I was interested in. You know, I was doing like philosophy of mind and language and metaphysics and mm. epistemology, like, like and like the hard stuff that smart people do, not like this like sissy, you know, moral stuff. Um, but like <clears throat> – uh, but, you know, I had to encounter all these arguments and – and when I got to Maryland, uh, you know, it kind of leveled up a level uh, at uh, at how difficult and sophisticated things were. And uh, and and at at a certain point, I like dropped out to go work at a startup because I like wanted to you know make it big. Uh, you know, ca- you know, people were giving stock options out, and this was like right <laughs> before the internet bubble burst, so that lasted like eight months. But then I got a job at the Institute for Humane Studies, which is like uh, you know a libertarian educational foundation, and got really deeply into the DC libertarian um, politics scene, um, public policy scene. And when I went back to Maryland, then I decided to do political philosophy, and. You know, you had to read John Rawls and all this, you know, the standard stuff, and you had to grapple with a lot of arguments against what I was doing. And I would, you know, I always took things like, like, I was kind of dogmatically ideological, but like I also always, because my self conception was as a superbly rational person mm. who could give you a satisfying justification. For my beliefs, I like I, I feel, felt it was incumbent upon me to be able to defend my views. And when somebody had an argument that kind of made me come up short, you know, I, I took that really seriously. Like I was sure that I was right, and that if I thought about it hard enough, <laughs> I would figure out what was wrong with what they're saying. And I always did. I mean, I'm very clever at shoring up my own flanks, right? Like. And I always did come up with an argument that would push it off, you know, like would like find a way to like um, to to just steal their argument of its intended force. But after you do that with 20, 30, 40 different arguments, right, like you have to make some tiny concessions, right? You you have to be like, okay, I can give away this premise that normally I would defend. But if I don't give this away, I'm going to have to give much something much bigger away. But after you start giving away a lot of these little premises, right, like it adds up to something bigger, which is why like dogmatists are really dogmatic, right? Like they're not going to give up any of the little premises because, you know, they see where it's going. Slippery slope. Yeah. Um, And so like, and so over time, you know, like I I dropped out of grad school, got a job at Cato. um, And, you know, and then at Cato, my job was to be a professional libertarian apologist. That's what I did. Um, and and so then I was you know encountered a whole other level of people the public intellectual you know mm-hmm. cohort um, and but like I think this is like really significant like when you're talking about like how your views changed because I think people's views change this is something people will say to you as a criticism which is which is that like you wanted some other group of people to like you. <laughs> yes. You wanted to go to cocktail parties, right? You know, you, you hear the cocktail party one? Of course, yes. But this is, I mean, it's not, 
is you know as you say it's it's not wrong and there's a reason that the uh, I actually think especially in that era the libertarians were quite um you know sort of the moneyed libertarians were quite savvy about about creating not just a intellectual superstructure but a social superstructure that people could be involved in and, and find friendships and you know find a life absolutely find those cocktail parties like they were very savvy about about playing that aspect of things. yeah so i so i was really deeply embedded in you know first i was in d- deeply embedded in the the sort of objectivist community that i'd become a part of online um but that is kind of a a kind of fringe of the broader libertarian community uh, you know, it, they're considered kind of like a little bit crazy. Um, they're always around, but and and when I got to Cato, um, you know, I kind of mainstreamed a little bit, um, and in part, and that was partly because of grad school. Like I, you know, started shifting my views to kind of a more respectable f- form of classical liberalism, um, but also to the more acceptable forms of libertarianism. Um, and I was, you know, embedded in these big libertarian institutions and social networks, but I wasn't just embedded in those, right? Like, and that, and this, I think makes a huge difference. Like at the same time, this was the early days of blogging and the early aughts. Mm. It's how I got my job at Cato. It's how I came to know Brink Lindsay. We both had um, blogs at the same time. Um, But there would always be these like meetups with people just like, what you had in common is that you all had a blog. And and so we'd meet up, and and you'd meet. It's a decently reliable indicator of an interesting personality, honestly. Yeah, at the time, I would go to a party of bloggers, especially at the time. Yeah, yeah, the early adopters were a certain kind of person, Um, and and I really enjoyed those. But like, um, but you just became socially interested in other people who were doing similar things as you. Like, so when I, you know, you know, I had moved into DC, and um, you know, I got to know Matt Iglesias and. And Ezra Klein and and Chris Hayes and all those people really well. They were part of my social milieu too. Um, you know, there was a weekly poker game that would you know go back and forth between like Julian Sanchez's house and the house group house that I had with a, a bunch of friends. Um, that, that was a very mixed liberal and libertarian affair, you know. And we'd just like shoot the shit, right? Like and and like I really think that. Julian Sanchez and me and, you know, a couple other people really um, have, you know, had a big influence on, say, like Matt's views on mm-hmm. on housing or occupational licensing. Occupational licensing, I was right. just going to say. Right. Like, I think to that, this day. I think that just the fact that he was socially connected with libertarians where, like, he it was like, these are actually good persuasive arguments. I don't like, like, in um, – and, you know, he wasn't convinced by libertarianism, but there were some things that libertarians thought that he became aware of at a deeper level. And, you know, some similar things with with Ezra. And, and, and they, you know, and they influenced me in turn, right? Like, like you know, we'd argue really hotly about things. And, um, and if you actually like somebody, if you're like part of the – you're part of their social circle, if, part of their social network um, – it just makes you take what they say seriously. You- it's so it's such a fundamentally different relationship than encountering some schmo online who you then proceed to argue with on Twitter, right? I mean, emotionally, it's such a hugely different relationship. Totally, totally. And so it, it really mattered to me that I that I, um, I I didn't know at the time, right? Because like in a way, I saw Matt and Ezra as like frenemies. 
<laughs> um, like because they were kind of rivals. Um, uh, and and I'm not a very comparative person, right? Like uh, in in the like, oh, you know, they got something that I want, but but I am very comparative in the, you know, I like this person is my benchmark. Like this is this, I think I'm as smart and talented as this person, and so if they're doing better than me, then that means I'm fucking something up, um, which is like why Ezra always makes me feel uh, um, like I'm fucking up my life. Um, oh, try writing it early, Vox. <laughs> uh, just, sur- just surrounded by wonderkins, plodding <laughs> along. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like th- my my views started to subtly change, and when I was at Cato, I you know started to, you know. You know, I, got, I was, you know, I had been working on my dissertation proposal. I'd gotten really deeply into Rawls because I was like, if I'm going to, like, this is what the core of analytic political philosophy is. You have to be conversant in Rawls or else you just can't be part of the conversation. You know, even if you're talking about something else, you have to talk about it in, there's a certain jargon, you know, that because because all of Rawls's Harvard students controlled all of the journals. And so they only wanted to talk about stuff in their language. It's like any field. Um, so I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta become fluent in, in Rawlsian. Um, and I got really deep into Rawls actually was super persuaded by a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, and so I came on this project of like, you know what, like he's right about how to think about a lot of these issues about, you know, about what it means for a society to be good and just and, um, but he just misses a ton. Right. And I, over this time, I'd become like a huge F.A. Hayek fan, who I think is just an absolutely brilliant person, um, and uh, you know had a huge influence on me. He's a much deeper thinker than people sometimes give him credit for because he gets used as a kind of cartoon figure yeah. um, as like the the bad right. But he's legitimately one of the most brilliant social theorists of the 20th century. Got a lot wrong, but there's a lot that's really deep in his stuff about you know cultural evolution and you know why it is that ideas persist and stuff like that that's that, that is really profound um but so i was like okay i'm gonna marry you know you know i'm gonna make john rawls and friedrich hayek have babies synthesis right this is the first like insofar as there's a retreat from ideology right it begins there right exactly. okay other people have some good points i'll synthesize it and make a, a better yeah yeah, exactly. And, and, and around the same time I was into this, you know, like we were, you know, kind of mutually influencing each other. Brink Lindsay, you know, wrote this essay in kind of about left leaning libertarianism for the new Republic that got titled libertarianism. Right. Um, Cause like, you know, working at Cato or being a libertarian, libertarians always say, you know, we're not really left or right. You know, like they want to claim this kind of neutral ground sort of thing. And I was like really into that. Um, and, and I took it seriously, which, which made me dumb. Um, <laughs> right. Well, if you just look at the words on the page, right. If you just look at the ideas and the deductions and the implications of the words themselves, it makes sense, right. If you're just ignoring all the sort of social undercurrents and, you know, psychological and emotional and political undercurrents beneath it, you could, you can continue believing that. I came to see, Pretty clearly, uh, when you work at the Cato Institute, you can't miss it. And when you <laughs> and when you're like just and then there's a broader social world. Like you know, as part of this organization called the Amer- America's Future Foundation, which was like a kind of a a, a youth club, like a, a young adults club for libertarians and kind of fusionist conservatives. 
And, you know, it's libertarians and fusionist conservatives. Like, and I'm socially constantly around Republicans, um, just mm. constantly. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, it's very, pretty clear to me that, you know, I would, and I would go to other libertarian things too, like, like the, um, the, you know, the marijuana policy project or whatever it was called, mm. like, you know, the, the weed legalization people who probably done a better job than just about anybody that I was ever, you know, around, uh, they've had tremendous success, right? Like they were like, you know, legit kind of like hippie ish left wing, um, libertarians, but that's just not what most of it was. Right. And even a lot of those people were right wing. And so I was like, well, you know, like logically, I, you know, I understand why this is the case sociologically, like, like the, you know, Republicans, you know, conservatives and libertarians were part of this cold war anti-communist coalition, but man, it was, you know, the mid aughts cold war had been over for, you know, 15 years. Like, can we get, you know, we can get past these contingent alignments, right? Um, so, you know, Brink and I were like, we, we we need to, like, make good on this thing. Like, we like if there can be a libertarian conservative fusionism, there can be a libertarian liberal fusionism. Hmm. Um, and we pursued that. And, uh, you know, Brink started— did you, did you have sort of dreams at that point of—or did Brink have dreams, or maybe both of you have dreams, of making that into, like— a bona fide thing that was going to end up, you know, having its own whatever think tanks and yeah, and, and political presence. Like, did you th- think it could become that? I'm not a very strategic person, <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I think that was the fantasy um, that that like right. um, th- that it would catch on and uh, have influence. Like, I, I think at some point we like thought like maybe we could, you know, take over Cato, um, uh, <laughs> uh, which was. Uh, short-sighted <laughs> but uh yeah like and we, we we had these like monthly dinners that um brink organized uh with steve tellis a political theorist at johns hopkins and that were we just called them the liberalitarianism dinners and it would be um mm. a bunch of you know people from cato and other libertarianish people from around dc you know I mean, like some reason people you know mega mccardle you know there's a some people who worked at the Economist, and then just like liberal, you know, wonks, people from Brookings, people from Cap, people from just you know wherever from the Nation, from the New Republic, um, and so we, through that process, Brink and I got ourselves embedded in the left of center, DC journalist, you know, wonk, public policy circles. Um, and a lot of those people became our friends, and 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 that that changes you too. Um, like just again, a lot of these people are just like smart people who are really impressive, yeah. and even and and I feel like we were really successful in pulling them a lot of our a lot of us in our direction. Um, but the way it works is that they pull you in their direction yeah. as well. And the Tea Party happened. Um, and, and <laughs> yeah, I was going to say part of this. Uh, Part of this seems to me, and this is what puzzles me about all the other libertarians, is that among these other things going on around then, around the kind of, well, I mean, you could see the undercurrents for decades, but it's sort of busted out in the open in the Tea Party. It's just the Republican Party evolving in a way that is 
diametrically opposed to whatever libertarian instincts remain yeah. in the party. You know what I mean? Like yeah, exactly. heading in the direction of sort of irrational identitarianism and cultural resentments and all that stuff. Like that's, I, I, this is what I don't get is how you can still be a professional libertarian and still be attached to that party. I mean, it was plausible, I guess, you know, in the early aughts, certainly in like the nineties or something like that. But at this point, like what is left of libertarianism in the actual Republican party? Yeah. I mean, Nothing <laughs> like, like, uh, I mean, we're, we've been having this, you know, last couple of days, this completely hilarious discourse about vaccine passports and people like people like opposing them on libertarian grounds. And it's just incoherent. <laughs> it's just completely incoherent. Right. Like, like we have to get the state to ban private organizations from requiring proof of vaccinations uh because otherwise it'll be like it's just it, they've completely lost their moorings and and to the extent that the right is i mean the, the right doesn't have libertarian impulses it has impulses that it sees as libertarian because they're things that they inherited from the conservative fusionists like Ron Paul um, who yeah. emphasized um, all of the liberal aspects of libertarianism, right? Like the, the you know, like, you know, Rand Paul, like it was like still against the Civil Rights Act and things like that. Freedom of association is so yeah. important uh, that, that you know, that it's just completely illegitimate for the law to do anything to rectify 400 years of enslavement and apartheid and, you know, brutal oppression. Like, like no, uh, you know, freedom of association is too important. But like everybody understands, and this is one of the things that like I just it, it took me a while, um, but like I did start to understand, and this was because of reading so much political philosophy and encountering these arguments over and over again, that that like you know we don't get to start from day zero, and the you know allocation of goods and you know resources that people get isn't a function of their individual initiative. It Everything has a history, and and the history is broken. And like, actually, one of the people who convinced me this the most was Robert Nozick, um, who mm. says very radical things in Anarchy, State, and Utopia about like like he's you know he's very clear that his argument doesn't apply to the actual world. Like his theory, <laughs> like he's I mean he's very frank about it, right? Like like if we had a just initial acquisition, like you know there, there's right. initially just distribution of goods. If we started from a point of perfect equality and then people made these voluntary exchanges that led to inequalities emerging, then then there would be no justification for like redistributing it, right? Like that's what he's saying. But he's definitely not saying that he's like explicitly says that the distribution that we have doesn't reflect I mean a bunch of just exchanges. It reflects a bunch of people stealing stuff right. from other people. Um and, and taking that sort of thing really seriously after a while, um and, and seeing how um irrelevant that is to actual libertarians. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, so what? <laughs> like, w what would happen if we all started from square one and had, you know, an initial just exchange of resources and went from there? Like, so what? Like, who cares <laughs> what applies in that situation? Right. It's not a, right. it's not a human situation that's ever happened or ever will happen. I would, uh, I, I would summarize the, the arguments that led me against, away from libertarianism in two ways. And you're sort of referencing the second one here a little bit. One is on a personal level, this notion that 
I'm responsible for what I do. You're responsible for what I do. I should be able to do whatever I want to do unless it harms you, mm-hmm. right? That's the that's kind of the libertarianism. Yeah. And so you look a little closer at like, well, what do, what do I mean harm you? Like it's clear enough if I punch you, right? But what if I uh, smoke a cigarette and your kid is in the same room? Or what if I drive to work? Mm-hmm. I, I admitted some greenhouse gases, which in some incremental, very distant, attenuated way, harms everybody mm-hmm. <laughs> on earth. So then the question then becomes, well, where do you draw the line of harm? Like what counts as harm? And then the more you think about that, the more you realize all the philosophical work is being done by your definition of what counts as harm, which does not follow from any of the libertarian pres- you know, sort of uh, premises. It's just a moral decision it's you know it's a moral decision mm-hmm. like what what am i going to count as negative harm and then what's too attenuated to count and where you draw that line everything falls out of that and what you sort of realize what i realize is the basic sort of like john muir you know you pull on one thing and you find it attached to everything yeah. sentiment like everything i do literally everything i do affects other people in some way or another so what ought to apply were i an atomic unit is is irrelevant Mm -hmm. because i'm not and no one ever is or can be and similarly in politics you know you want to maximize freedom which in a clean world where we're starting fresh might be purely negative freedom, right? You just don't impede people, don't mess with people, don't prevent them from doing things. But in the world we live in, to truly secure freedom, if if freedom means anything, if freedom has any substantive content, requires intervention by government, requires active, right? Requires active intervention by government. And then again, you're just drawing the line of like, well, what increment of lost freedom in the past justifies government intervention today. Yeah. And again, it's more or less an arbitrary line where you draw like every and everything falls out of where you draw that line. And it turns out like the, the clean slate is totally mythology, mythological. We're all always already enmeshed in all these historical obligations and responsibilities and histories. And so just like the cleanness Right, the sort of cleanness and clarity, which is what attracted me as a teen. I guess I sort of realized as I got older is like, in so far as that's attractive and clean, it's because it's wrong and has no application to the actual world, and is not going to make me happy, and is not going to make like a a good society. And you're sort of like, you reference that in the you know in the clean slate stuff, and then you're and this, so this brings you, I think to libertarianism, which is, as I understand it, this notion that, yes, we want to maximize freedom, right, like the libertarians, but we acknowledge that merely refraining, right, from restraining people will not have the intended outcome, right? right? You have to, you have to purposefully create the conditions of freedom. So then, you you were there for a while in libertarianism, and it kind of like it never really. Everybody seemed to sort of like it, like I like it too, <laughs> but it never really seemed to catch on. And you also say that you've kind of 
moved past it or would no longer use that term or sort of like I don't I, went know. beyond it. So what what's what's where did that fall? Like this this synthesis, like why did you end up sort of becoming dissatisfied with it in the end? Well, you know, I, I that's hard because I, like there's a lot that that is still what I think in a lot of ways, but you know, I, I stopped calling myself a libertarian when, like, like I still saw myself as libertarian, right? Like it was a deeply embedded, deeply internalized aspect of my identity. But at a certain point, I saw that oh, the things that I thought were so heterodox, like I, I, I was kind of abusing the term if I was applying it to myself because because a lot of people would think that I wasn't if they knew what I thought like even though like I still felt that I was like I was just interpreting liberty correctly and that that you know and, and you know similarly with with libertarianism like I I like one of the main components of that is you know something that I've called like the, the free market welfare state um you know which you you want you know, markets that are innovative, not onerously regulated, um, so that you know markets can be dynamic, prices can move freely. You want regula- you, know, you want the right regulations, right? You, you need to take care of externalities and you know, you know, public goods and things like that. Um, but like you, you know, we ought to be aiming for a dynamic, innovative, high growth economy because the humanitarian upshot of economic growth is immense and and so that's something we ought to be going for and um markets that are competitive and innovative and dynamic are a huge part of that um but it's clear to me from the political science literature that uh people will only tolerate that kind of dynamism the kind of you know disruptive innovation that drives growth if they are insulated from the downside risks of all of this dislocation and you know creative destruction, um, you know people aren't going to tolerate having their jobs offshored or you know just like having a a new technology just completely put your business out of business. Like if they don't know what they're going to do, right? Like 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 how am I going to feed my kids, right? Like right. so so you know people want social insurance. Like it's the most freaking popular thing in the world. Like it's just like you can't get around it. Like and the richer people get, the more government they demand. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's almost a law. Um uh and I mean there I forget what the name of it is, but there there Wagner's law. Uh it's not really a law, but like it's a Wagner's uh you know Correlation. Consistent regularity. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, as, you know, GDP per capita goes up, demand for government goes up. Um, And a lot of that is that people want social insurance. Um, That's the most expensive stuff. This is part of why uh, something you've been writing about a lot lately. This is part of what explains the deep strain of anti-democratic sentiment within libertarianism is that if you give people the choice, they do not choose libertarianism. Like, like, I mean, it really does come down to that, but that's the, it's interesting. Like that's the view of basically anybody with a dogmatic ideological 
um, theory. <laughs> exactly. Like, like because people don't choose right. You won't choose right, right? Like, yeah. Like, so we need to have the revolution and you know install the party uh, because you, like democracy is going to end up being counter revolutionary, right? Like, like, like everybody has the same problem um, unless you're just going to be a consistent small D Democrat um, where you're just going to like be like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to just freaking live with people disagreeing. And I think that people ought to get what they vote for, <laughs> you know, like, right. And, well, we'll, we'll return to that later too. Yeah. So if you stop fighting that, I mean, you're just like, you know, clearly people like, but it's not just that, right? Like, it's not just that people overwhelmingly demand, you know, unemployment insurance and, you know, some kind of, health insurance that has some like public backstop, you know, like all of that, um, you know, old age insurance, social security, Medicare, um, like they want it bad um, and they get it. Um, but except for healthcare in the United States, um, <laughs> we, you know, we, 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 we're not communists, you know, uh, and, and it like, but it's not just that, like that stuff actually does enable the economy to be dynamic, it's just really, really clear that 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 people are much more tolerant of um, you know market liberalization when they're insulated from the shocks. Uh, you know, so if you have, uh, you know, if you if you leave people comfortable, you know, if I lose my job, I'm going to get like unemployment for however long. Um, my kids are going to have public education, even if I lose my job. My kids are going to have health care, even if I lose my job. Right? Like people stop worrying so much about like whether having dynamic markets is going to make them lose their job, right? Like it's, it's right. like kind of obvious why it would. Um, it's like any, any, this, this seems so common sense to me, I guess, looking back now, it, it's just any system, any living system, you know, or, or any really sort of like self-maintaining system, you know, look at biology, look at computer programs, name it, needs some degree of openness, and some degree of structure and stability, right? And you want to you want to balance too much openness, and you get dissolution. Too much structure, and you get sort of decay and rot. So you want a balance of like structure and dynamism. And it's just like that seems trivially obvious when you think about living systems in biology or even social systems. It's only an ideologue who could ever sort of imagine like going all the way in one of those directions is some sort of skeleton yeah. key to I mean th- I mean but victory. you're pointing to like why it is that ideas of like spontaneous order and emergent order are so important to libertarians and a certain kind of conservative because you have to believe that like a certain structure is going to emerge, emerge um out of all these individual acts of you know exchange trade and blah 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 you know and to a large extent it does but like the thing is, like, politics is just endogenous to all of it all the time anyway, and the big fallacy is, you know, thinking that there's some – that there's the market on the one hand and the state on the other hand and that they're antagonistic. But, like, it's just – if you if – you, like, and this is another thing that just had a big effect on me. Like, I started getting some economic history when I worked at the Mercatus Center, another of the, you know, coctopus uh, – libertarian organizations, I ran a series of seminars um, that were led by Douglas North, who is a wonderful, you know, he died a few years back. He was in his 90s, but a Nobel Prize winning economic historian. And I don't know why exactly Mercatus was um, 
financing junkets on his behalf because he wasn't really remotely libertarian, but like it was a prestige thing for us. Um, and and these seminars were amazing. It was like had some of the world's best economic historians, a bunch of economic theorists, like some amazing political scientists, you know, and I had to organize these things and like take notes. Uh, and it was a huge education and I just learned a lot of economic history and you start to see that, oh, markets exist because governments create them, right? Like yeah. they, 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 they form a lot, you know, trade is always going to happen, right? Like you can't stop human beings from being like, you know, oh, you got a Kit Kat, you know, can I, uh, I'll give you a Reese's, right? Like people are going to trade uh, and, and people are going to trade in complicated ways, but a lot of forms of trade just aren't possible without somebody creating a kind of infrastructure that makes sure that you know contracts get enforced and you know like yeah this is so this is so fundamental to me i wanted to stop and focus on this point for a minute because this i've i've been thinking about this a lot lately you you will have trade you always have trade trade is just part of what humans do if you want to scale it beyond like tribe trades with other tribe, if you want to do it on any scale, you're going to end up trading with people you don't know and don't have any social or historical connection to. You don't have any of these sort of emotional or social bonds that might help enforce rules or honesty or whatever. So if you want to scale it up at all, you need rules that are separate from either tribe, that both tribe agrees to subsume their immediate interests to, right? I mean, that's just like the basic structure of non-zero cooperation. We're going to together submit to this third party, this independent third party authority uh, that consists of a set of rules and some mechanism to enforce those rules. And then and then you've got uh, you've got government and this is sort of to to me the process by which humanity is improving itself and building up and becoming more complex and building up and outward is through these mechanisms of non-zero cooperation all of which involve the same basic structure and this was this is to me what's interesting about the US is the closest thing a country came to being founded explicitly on that on that notion right like we are not a tribe or even a set of tribes we are just a set of rules and procedures through which tribes can cooperate in a non-zero way. And to me, this is this is sort of the key, really the central tension in politics is that <clears throat> I think if you look back over history, you'll see almost every advance in human welfare came out of that, right? Came out of that system of non-zero cooperation and agreement to third-party rules. You can see it in sort of like, just like science, you know, like we're, I'm not right because I'm more influential or have this or that degree. We all submit to the same rules of like, you know, third party examination and peer review and whatever else, sort of like these rule-based systems have produced everything that's, that we love and is good, but they are always in tension with tribal imperatives, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and tribal instincts and the sort of instinct that like, if the rules tell me that I must sacrifice my tribe's best interests, then fuck the rules. My tribe's best <laughs> interests are my, are my thing, are my primary thing, and any rules are secondary. 
And that's sort of like the, all of human history is like the buildup of non-zero cooperation and then the periodic collapse of non-zero mm-hmm. cooperation because of these tribal instincts. And that just, to me, uh, among other things, sort of renders the sort of libertarian idea ridiculous in that it is only these rules and these structures and these enforcement mechanisms, which we call government in some cases, that enable what we call markets like sophisticated, you know, modern markets at all or, or exchange of, of, of ideas or art or, or, or like name it. Like it's all everything good comes out of that. Yeah. I mean, you see, you, you know, if you, if you look at the, like economic history of like any fundamental good, like I, on my podcast, I recently, you know, had Virginia Postrel on who is the former editor in chief of Reason Magazine. Um, she's just written this. I thought just absolutely riveting book on the history of textiles. Um, but like, you know, it's kind of gets into the political economy of how, you know, we come to have the fabrics that we wear. Um, it's called The Fabric of Civilization. It's a really good book. Um, and, you know, you just look at textiles and just, you know, it's one of the most fundamental things. Every single culture in the world weaves you know, in some way. So like, how does that scale up into trade? And like you, if you follow that story, there's a certain point at which, you know, it's just face-to-face exchange and then like, you know, extending trade routes. And then there's a certain point at which like, you just can't do the, you know, non-zero sum exchanges. They get too complicated. The assurance problems get too hard. You like, like the, right. the, how do you know that the other side is going to hold up their end of the deal? Like, how do you, you know, retrieve lost resources when the other people, you know, screw you over. And, you know, immediately people come up with institutions to solve those problems. And those institutions are like the law and, uh, and, and states like, <laughs> yeah. like states didn't exist to do this, right? Like states, uh, exist because, uh, you know, um, people are tyrants and want to lord over other people and, you know, princes like fought over land and shit like that. Um, but they ended up having to play this role or somebody else would and they'd get richer. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, drive them out of business. So all these, you know, principalities sooner or later had to, you know, start providing these state services and they all do because you can't get out of it. And the funny thing is like, you know, the people, libertarians and conservatives, like, like to think of the United States as this especially libertarian place, but in a way, it's like especially not, um, <laughs> yeah. because we, I mean, the American state is you know like we provide the you know the backstop currency for the entire world, like we provide uh, the like like clear shipping lanes as a global public good sure. that is mainly. Uh, enforced by the you know credible threat of American naval hegemony, right? Like this is like our, the American state is incredibly powerful, and our the modern economy, like the modern global economy, not just the modern American economy, like depends critically on the American state doing things. You know, the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. doing things, like the Treasury doing things, the U.S. military doing things, um, and 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 so like the status quo order is just. You know, not even remotely libertarian, and a lot of the stuff that like libertarianish conservatives like, like for some reason, a lot of them like the military or whatever. Like, are, are you know are in the business of providing these these like uh, you know global public goods, but they but they tend to see anyway market structure as being something that's like emergent and evolved <laughs> rather than um, politically 
chosen and implemented and sustained. And and I do find that like incredibly naive. And it's important to see just how political all of our markets are. Because I like one of the things that drives me crazy is intellectual property law. You know, I like yeah. copyrights. Um, patents, they're just outright theft, right? They're state-enforced monopolies. They provably um, put a damper on innovation. Um, they're make, they make us poorer. Uh, and they're, uh, you know, obviously just fake. You know, it's just the state is a right that's just made up out of thin air. And, the, the, you know, it makes a lot of sense. You want to incentivize people to discover stuff and you want them to be able to internalize an outsized portion of the overall gains as a certain kind of compensation for their, you know, intrepid productivity and discovery. But like, you know, they don't have to be long. They don't have to be restrictive. Um, and and so like, but the, the American economy is just structured, you know, soup to nuts by intellectual property law. Mm -hmm. um, just absolutely like, you know, everything that like, you know, I, I, you know, I can get arrested for fixing my computer. Like, it's just crazy. Um, and so, like, you know, like, once you understand that markets are political, just in that very simple way that markets are structured by the legal definition of property rights, uh, mm. and that we can be actively involved in structuring them in different ways, um, once you realize that, you can actually be more constructive about trying to build the dynamic markets. But you have to build them. Markets don't stay competitive by themselves, for instance. Um they just don't. Yes, there's no final structure that gets things right that's like uh, set it and forget it, right? Which is another thing that like is an attraction, I think, of libertarianism, especially to sort of young left-brain males is like, get this system in place and then we're good. And, and like, I think as we get older, some of us at least, I mean, this is to, to me is pretty fundamental to my philosophical development is that there is no end to that right <laughs> this is what you mean yeah. by politics never goes away there is no end to the process of negotiation and and amendment and updating and fighting and contestation and sort of like this is what pluralism means mm -hmm. is like that process of haggling things out with one another is not an interim state on the way to something else. It just is. It just is human affairs. It's the who's got the quote. Um, one must imagine Sisyphus happy, <laughs> happy, <laughs> right, right. I think that's uh, the more I think about that, like the longer I've sat with that, the more profound I think it is. And I think it it has to do with this, just like getting comfortable with the ambiguity and frustrations and half measures that come with pluralism yeah. and this, you know, I sort of like, uh, I'll skip a few steps since we're um, since I definitely want to get to this and this gets to my sort of central question about America these days. But, you know, as I've, as I've thought about it and gone through sort of philosophies of everything, you know, I'm sort of very attracted to philosophies of everything. I've just started thinking more and more lately, like here's the kind of thought experiment I run in my head. Like what if God came down and said, Hey, I'm real. I am in fact omniscient and like your, your philosophy is correct. You got it right. Like all <laughs> the other ones are wrong and like objectively metaphysically <laughs> you are correct. And I just think, well, what would change in the world 
if that happened, right? <laughs> if it turned out I was not just thought I was right, but I actually was right. And I actually did know the right system. And the more I think about it, it's just nothing would change. Like, Fake news. Yeah, like, like that wasn't nothing, real Nothing God. would change in the world. It would, if to other people, it would be indistinguishable from me just thinking I'm right, right? And so I would still end up having to negotiate with people who believe differently than me and find some way for us all to live together peacefully. So that, so that, you know, that, that process of politics, of pluralism, of figuring out a way for people who believe different things to live together peacefully is the meat, is the real thing. And it's not like some frustrating shadow on the wall of a true political philosophy that we could someday reach, right? It's like that is the meat and potatoes of politics. It is, it is the final state of politics is haggling and fighting and never quite knowing, right? And never quite getting, you know, the perfect measure passed. All that stuff is just, this is like also what philosophical pragmatism led me to, right? And in, in, in a similar way, sort of like Rorty's whole point, he kind of thought himself out of analytic philosophy. Uh, you, you know, I sort of feel the same way. Like at the end of the day, whatever these truths are, you're still stuck in a world full of people who believe different truths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we've got to figure out how to live together. And so figuring out how to live together is the whole thing. It's not some like frustrating distraction from the real thing. I, I agree with that Did it completely. Like, and, and, and that has been a big, that was a big shift in my, you know, my overall outlook once that sunk in. Um, you know, I've written a lot about like why libertarians are skeptical of democracy and, you know, comes down to what you said before. Um, the problem with it is that people won't vote for libertarianism. Um, but like, you know, I, for a long, long time, I had these, this kind of general skepticism about democracy, like, like, oh, you know, like people aren't really that smart. Um, you know, they're, people are like, you know, and it's true. Like people are poorly informed. It's amazing what people don't know. Uh, about politics, uh, you know, I don't know what party is. You know, like, like I, I, I love the factoid, or not, not a factoid, just like the fact that that you know, this huge realignment of working class whites came about just because Barack Obama was black. And it's not just like that they were racist; it's just they didn't know which party was the <laughs> party know. for like white I people. Know. Which party? Was it's amazing how much poor analysis happens in political circles by people who just cannot really conceive or internalize the depth of public ignorance. So they have to like create these other explanations for things that happen. Yeah. I mean, I just find that just amazing that like just having a black guy as president made a lot of like, you know, union members be like, Oh, that's the party of like civil rights. Uh, and, right. and, and like the party for like, like white people's interests is the other party, right? Like, like, like people didn't know. Um, and like, but, you know, it's easy if if that's the way it is. If there is such endemic public ignorance, it, it you know there's you know, it's reasonable to be a bit wary of what democratic publics are going to do. But like in the end, there's just no way to get around people disagreeing. Like you could like if you want to say that like oh people have these rights or people have those rights, like they're politically effective, they're real if enough people agree. That you're right, yes. right? Like, like it, you know, it really, like you're saying, it doesn't matter who's right, um, because you know, like, you're not going to convince everybody that so and so is right, right? Like, so you, the the 
the whole thing, and that's the kind of the Rordian point, is that that if people all just kind of agree that this is a right and the, the courts agree and the legislatures agree and people don't relentlessly campaign against the recognition of this right and try to install judges who won't, like, like then it's a right. That's what it is for something to be a right. It has a social reality. Like, you know, it's, for, it's, it's exactly the same as why, like, our money's worth anything. Like it's because everybody thinks it's worth something, and that's good yes, enough. But but much like much like people don't understand money for for I think partially psychological reasons. Like something about that terrifies people or just unsettles people on a deep deep level. You see this, you know, with like traditionalists or religious people or even sort of like philosophical, you know, sort of realists or whatever. Just this idea that like wait a minute, if, if, if it's only real to the extent we agree it's real, we're just in marshmallow. We're in mush. There's nothing to push off. There's nothing to, there's no foundation. Mm -hmm. There's no sort of hard thing to put your back up yeah, against. Where you get the friction, just, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's every, it's just, it's, you know, this m ambiguous mush forever that I think terrifies people. This is why people want God or whatever, right? Is like, is like, there's a yeah, I mean, ground somewhere that we can find and and get our bearings yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, there's some fundamental psychological differences between people who can who are tolerant of ambiguity and people who yes. find it very very uncomfortable. Um, and I seriously think that the you know probably the main you know, foundational ultimate reason why. I have been able to change my mind a lot over time is that I'm extremely comfortable with ambiguity in the end, that, I, that, that, that I'm okay to yeah. be in a suspended state where I'm not like, like I feel that discomfort right now. Um, you know what, you know, I you know, recently lost my last job, which was like, you know, I was supposed to be like a kind of proponent for a certain kind of libertarianism. And, you know, I was relieved to get out of it because I didn't, I don't, I don't like having to be the champion of, a representative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I just want to try to figure out what's right, <laughs> you know. Like, and I don't want to yes. feel constrained by, like, you know, yes. by, ergo substack. Yeah, ergo, ergo, <laughs> ergo substack. You know, but but it's about like being able to. In one of my favorite essays um, is uh, by the novelist um, Donald Barthelme, who is the kind of patron saint of the MFA program I went to uh, at the University of Houston. It's a, a, a beautiful essay called "Not Knowing." And this is about writing. This is about writing fiction. Mm -hmm. um, but I, it applies to just about everything, right? Like that that art comes out of a certain comfort with not knowing, with like being in this uncomfortable suspended state of 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 ambiguity. Uh, there's a you know kind of same thing as this term from Keats, like negative capacity. Uh, I'm like. It's yeah. one of my favorite ideas. But can we acknowledge that this is that this is unusual, <laughs> an un, an unusual <laughs> uh, psychological? Well, feature. I don't think it's unusual Would, for a certain kind of person. Like I think it is. Like like I'm saying, like Ayn Rand fucked up my life. I'm supposed to be an artist, right? Like this is how artists right. are. That's why they seem right. weird. for a certain kind of person. It's uh, it's. It definitely is more usual in like art or poetry or writing or acting or something like that, right? Which is which is about humans and therefore must wrestle with ambiguity. It's unusual to find it in. I think it's more unusual for that kind of person to 
to go into politics, right? Because like no, they, they, people tend they, to be attracted to politics through some theory that they that they think is correct and right. No, and politics will will just absolutely repel people with a great deal of negative capacity. <laughs> like and, even and, though- and fear, fear. You know, I think we both acknowledge that these 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 personality traits are not like fixed quantities, right? They're 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 variable based on circumstance, social circumstance, and and, and things like that. And of course, as we know, fear sends people the other direction. Fear pulls people away from ambiguity and makes them more desirous of clarity, mm-hmm. more desirous of clear in and out rules. So it just seems so because I think this tolerance of ambiguity is sort of like crucial for humanity's healthy future, but like it's just so defeasible. It's so easy to Yeah. It's just like you have to engage your frontal cortex to do that, which means your sort of amygdala has to be quiet, a little bit quiet. Like you can't, you, you have to calm these sort of like fight or flight systems in order to be able to exercise the kind of frontal cortex thinking that can allow you to see um, sort of the virtues of ambiguity and, the, mm-hmm. and, and non-zero cooperation and all these things. But it's just like so easy to get people scared. I don't know how good things ever happen in politics. Well, yeah, I, I don't either. <laughs> I've, I've talked myself into a position where I think everything good is miraculous. Well, well I mean, we, we, we've done the, uh, you know, uh, the very common thing of, uh, of seeing uh, why our own personality type is like awesome. Um, we, we, we're, we're the, 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 awesome and rare. The, the, high, the, the very high openness, very low consciousness is the, is the um, negative capacity. Uh, that's the artist. Like that, that's the free associative, um, like, like, try it out um you don't really care right i have that but i also have that i also have that rationalist the person who craves clarity the person who is attracted to libertarianism in a first place i also have that person inside me and those two people do not necessarily cohere well, you know <laughs> they, 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 they do i mean like this is something i've thought a lot about about like why like why some of my best friends are are, are people that i met at objectivist camp when I was an undergraduate. And, <laughs> right. and the thing is like, because it turns out they were like me, like everything depends on where you start, right? Like, like in people, it's not people's fault. If you yeah. started out reading Marx or you started out reading Ayn Rand, you'll, you'll get on a different track, but where you end up is going to depend on what kind of person you are. And, mm. and a lot of the people who my still friends from objectivist camp are people who are just like really high openness. They're incredibly, they're intellectual and yeah. curious. And they were in uh, really curious about Ayn Rand and objectivism at the same time that I was. Right. But like that right. wasn't going to be the end of their curiosity. It was the beginning. Right. Um, and then they right. move on. But like, like there's nothing inconsistent with, with, with having a logical rationalist disposition and this kind of just all-consuming curiosity about different views and different cultures and things like that. And if you've got that kind of personality, it's you're going to have a hard time sticking with a, a dogmatic tribe once you've figured yeah. out that they're doing something that doesn't make sense. It's going to bug you. Yeah. So let me skip to what I think is the key, really the the center, the central question about America. Then before before we're done, because I really wanted to grapple with this, and we've sort of laid some Cancel of the groundwork. Culture? To, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I'm, I'm talking about Dr. Seuss. Uh-huh. Um, no, it's it's you, you know as we said earlier, the U.S. in its founding 
documents and theorizing is a nation founded not on any tribe or class of people, but on ideas. Like we all people have dignity, all people have rights, rule of law, not of man, which I have just like, as I grow older, think is more and more <laughs> like more and more important, more and more central to everything. This idea that we're all governed by these procedures and these objective third party arbiters and that's how we make pluralism work, right? As we all submit to this shared set of principles and values and rules. And within that, we can have our own, whatever, culture, our own cultural uh, ideas, our own religion, religious freedom, our own freedom of philosophy and association, right? So pluralism is going to live by virtue of these rules. And then there's like this other America, you might call it, the actual America, which is very much founded by a particular tribe and class of people, and in practice has always violated its principles and rules to to elevate and 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 maintain the dominance of of those people. You know, there's white money, property owning, whatever, on and on. So there's this core tension in America, and and I have just started wondering, like. Is that resolvable, right? So if you come to America with thick, what they call thick cultural commitments, right? Like you believe in Christianity, say, if you really believe in Christianity, then it sort of follows that you should want everybody else to be Christian, right? Like it's sort of like it is inherently somewhat totalizing, as most sort of like hardcore fundamentalist philosophies or religions tend to be. And so, can you genuinely hold on to those thick commitments and also submit to this sort of this sort of thinner commitment to proceduralism? Right, I mean that's kind of what America is is supposed. That's what pluralism is. You can keep your thick commitments as long as you abide by these sort of procedural, these rules, these institutions, right? And I'm just have and and, and sort of that's an inherent tension, and it's been resolved in the past by through hypocrisy, right? Basically through white men running things while saying words about uh, procedural neutrality, right? And sort of waving their hands at procedural neutrality. But now, like, demographics are changing and people are starting to sort of, you know, notice that and demand their own um, piece of the pie. And so the test of those kind of procedural commitments is, is, is happening now. And I just, like, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is it really possible for those kind of thin commitments to procedure, to procedural neutrality, to a common set of laws and rules and institutions? Is it possible for that to be enough to sustain human beings psychologically and socially? Or do they need thick commitments, right, to particular tribes, particular gods, what have you, particular histories. And if they do need the thick commitments, can they then live together under these thin commitments? In other words, I guess what I'm asking is, is true pluralism actually possible, like just psychologically? 
Is it something that humans can genuinely do? I think so. I think it's hard. The, you know, this, you know, thick, thin tension, you know, isn't ever going to go away. People do need thick identities. Very few people are, you know, deracinated cosmopolitan liberals with, you know, a high tolerance for ambiguity who just like think negative capacity is the greatest thing in the world, right? Like, yes. uh, it, it, people like us could live in that so, world. So, so like, as I think we established, you know, like I could ideologically freaks. relish uh, contestatory democracy and pluralism, but like I think that is always going to be a, a minority view. Um, I, what we're going through right now, I mean, I, I don't really think it's a, you know, like a battle between, um, like thick white Christian identity and thin American proceduralism. Um, it's just like the most normal thing in politics that, that, that politics is always distributively hot, right? Like it's distributively high stakes and the composition of our population has changed a great deal and the relative power of a certain kind of white person, white Christians has precipitously declined uh, and they're terrified about loss of control over the culture and the economy and their sense of status. Um, and and I don't think it's about maintaining a thick Christian lifestyle because you you like you there's you know religious participation has fallen off a cliff, and there are tons of like Trumpist conservatives who don't go to church, um, who like who you know will say that they're Christian, but like actually have no religious practice in their life. So they're not really, they'd probably be better off if they were animated by like a thick conception of, of, <laughs> of the good in religion. Like, I think there's something nihilistic about this kind of person just, you know, getting on more. Well, it's a culture though. I mean, it's a specific culture, right? Uh, whatever pickup trucks, Arby's, owning the libs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's, yeah, a bunch of, it's a culture. Cultural politics has replaced a lot of, uh, of, uh, of religion stuff, but I think, but I think we're just like going through a lot of turmoil because we're at this inflection point, right? Where you know white Christians are already in the minority, the you know population is going to be majority non-white by you know twenty forty two or so, like you know just barely more than twenty years, and and the current coalition that is the Republican Party isn't going to survive in a pluralistic democratic society that is as diverse and multicultural as the one we uh, are coming to have. And th these are death throes and they're dangerous. Like places, this happens over and over and over and over again in history where the, the, the dominant, you know, the, the, the dominant group who is a majority falls into the minority and then they get nasty Right, happens again and again, and it, yes, it is. It is it, it, that is politics, yeah, <laughs> basically. And 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 so, like, I think we're. I think it's going to stay nasty for a while. But but the question, I guess, I'm trying to get at is is, you know, I think there are people who would argue America worked because there was a dominant identity and culture, and it was you know defined at least part in part by openness to other cultures and by allowing other cultures and colors and ethnicities and languages to come and sort of like hang out as long as they didn't get too uppity. But I think there are people who would argue democracy really only works if one, if there is a primary 
culture, right? And if a primary culture falls and loses its hegemony, there's it's going to be replaced by another one. There's no such thing as a stable state with multiple sort of equally non-dominant cultures. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like true, that's what I mean by true pluralism. I mean, I think there are people who would argue that true pluralism just can't survive well, I think and, you're the, making, and, the, and the throws are going to be, end up in the replacement of one culture by another. I think another, you're making a point that dominant. we kind of like, like went through in a different guise that, that a lot depends on social agreement, that the like facts with social ontologies depend on agreement. And one of those facts is the authority of the state, um, the legitimacy of a democratic system. And people have to agree about it for it to have it. Right, like, like, agree enough right. about it for us to have it. And right now, we've got a, a lot of disagreement. Like, basically, the the Republican Party is against democracy. It thinks basically its theory is that the other party isn't fully American. That they're citizens only in a technical sense, but not a moral sense. Right, that the U.S. is their culture, not the procedural, not the laws and procedures. It's their culture that is the essence of the United States. And if their culture is dethroned, even if you have the laws and procedures still in place, you don't have America. Right. Um, And and so, like, but they're contesting the legitimacy of the laws and procedures for this other reason, right? Like, it's it's like it's not like they they have some philosophical problem with majoritarian institutions. Um, it's they have a tribal problem with <laughs> majoritarian institutions. Um, and 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 I think it's true that in the long run, if you're going to sustain liberal democratic institutions, that there does need to be a common narrative about what the country is and in what it means. Um, but I don't think there's right. any how th- how thick that needs to be i guess is what i'm trying yeah but i trying like to, to ask i don't like I, i'm skeptical of the thick thin dichotomy because there's like I, I i know what you mean by thickness in some daily practice sort of way like if you know if i'm really religious and i've you know i've got to you know i've got to you know pray five times a day and face mecca and like and i think most people need that kind of thickness in their life, but I don't think it's necessarily political. And I don't, because it's, it's, it becomes the reasons those identities are political is either people are threatened um, because they're in the minority and there's, um, you know, the majority is trying to stomp on their identity or what's happening now is you've got a majority that's dwindling into a minority and they're panicked and trying to hold on but I don't think there's a problem for most American Muslims or most American Buddhists or most American Jews that like in living a thick religious life, for example, um, like uh, that's consistent with their allegiance to a certain conception of of America. Like like what you said before uh, that about the, the, there being this inherent tension between America's ideals and America's history, I think is the story. Right, like that is the story that everybody can accept. The thing that we can all agree on and that we can be proud of is that we have these ideals that are beautiful and that who we are are a people who have struggled over time to make good on our ideals so that they apply to everyone. Right? Like and people can 
everybody can buy into that. <laughs> like, it, it, yeah. in theory. I don't, I just don't know. I mean, I guess everybody, my, I guess my, my cynical suspicion is just that if you're a, you know, sort of a minority culture or minority ethnicity or whatever, obviously that conception of kind of, you know, procedural fairness and, and pluralism is, is to your advantage. So it's, it's in a system like ours, it's natural that all kind of subaltern um, populations and, and factions are going to proclaim allegiance to those, to that set of values. Right. But then like, if they gain power, gain some power and dominance, if one of them saying were to gain some special privileges or whatever, it just seems like those commitments would go overboard and they would become committed to their continued yeah. <laughs> continued power. You know what I mean? It's only like a tool for subaltern populations trying to get a piece of the pie. And I just wonder if it's enough, you know, if like, I, yeah, if, it's, I th- if it's a stable thing. No, I mean, it's not stable. Like, like, it, but this is just what we were talking about. Like, you know, Sisyphus be happy, right? Like, like <laughs> right. that's just it. I mean, like people are going to disagree. They're going to get mad about it. They're going to try to undermine the system when it's, uh, against their faction's interests, and you have to try to do whatever you can to have systems where the coalition of the rest of everybody who has an interest in maintaining the rules that some faction is trying to undermine is sufficient to hold them up, right? Like it's just like it doesn't stop. It, like like the system will never fall into a steady state equilibrium where where right. we don't have to worry about it you know, spinning out of control, it's always like, like every system is sooner or later going to spin out of control. The American system is like weird in the, in the, in the sense that it has persisted for so long, despite um, so many internal tensions. I mean, yeah, baffling. The more you learn about history, the more baffling that fact becomes. Yeah. Like, like countries just like, how is this government's collapse? um, You know, and you know, like, you know, something I just wrote, like, I was like, you know, constitutions don't survive because the the framers were brilliant. They survive because, like, they're always fucked up. They're always inadequate. We can never anticipate um, how people are going to bend the rules, how they're going to exploit them. Um, but like Hayek is right about spontaneous orders. We don't know what order will emerge on top of a set of fundamental rules when you first put them in place. Um, you don't know what factions are going to realign around those rules and what their dynamics are going to be, right? Like, so, so, so this, just the system is always going to tend toward some kind of destabilization, and it is always about being creative and flexible about figuring out how to shore up the system. And that's one thing Americans have been good at. Like, we are good at kludges. We're like, like, like that's one of the things that annoys me about conservatives these days is like they, there's so much – worship of the framers and this originalist conception of the constitution when seriously the fact that our country survives at all is because we're pragmatic we're like we're arbitrary like we would just we'll change the rules like like you know by definition every constitution is living um like they Mm. they survive by being changed so that they're not incompatible with the order that is emerging, right? And and so like we're you know we're we've got this crazy kludgy patched system um, that you know just somehow it's like this jalopy that is flying and 
who knows how it stays up. <laughs> Doesn't that terrify you, though? Doesn't that terrify the mechanic? Like, I don't know how this thing's running, but I'm going to get in there and fuck with the engine anyway. Like, well, I, like I've mm-hmm. like I've become zen about it, right? Like, like, like. Of course, I'm terrified of the plane crashing, and, and like, especially <laughs> since right now, uh, like about forty percent of the country are just like just straightforwardly trying to crash it. Um, and, yes. and so like that is alarming, but, but I just think like, this is it. This is like, this is what life is. This is politics and life is political. There's not a way out of it. There's not a better place to go. That's going to be better permanently. Like it, it's, it's just, it's just what it is. And, you know, like I mean, my parents, my grandparents were, you know, alive with like the worst war in the history of the world, everything fucking fell apart. Right. And it's just like, there's nothing that's going to stop that from happening again. It will happen again. And you just have to try to like be a finger in the dam, right? Like you just got to, you like, and hope that enough other people get their fingers in there. Um, And sometimes it's just going to fail. Like you're just not going to get enough fingers in the fucking dam and it's going to break and you're all going to die. And there's nothing we can do about it. Um, Except, Try to put your finger in the dam and try to convince other people to do it. Right, right. And I guess like another thing that makes me uncomfortable about that, but I guess I'll probably just have to get used to it, is just like for me, that vision of like a kludgy jalopy being held together by our patches as we go forward that's never done, that's never fixed, that we're all constantly fighting over that sort of like contested pluralism that never resolves into any clean one system or another. I can get behind that as such. Like (laughs) to me, that's like, yeah, that's, that's life. It's as good as it gets. Like it's better than it's better than the many tyrannical alternatives. Uh, (laughs) Right. But I just don't, uh, you know, coming back to this, like I just don't envision that, idea or that vision inspiring that many people i mean it's terrifying it's just inherently terrifying and uncertain well, i don't think people have to think that's what it is it's not important that right. people see the system for what it is right like like because they're not that's part of that's internal to this view that people are going to disagree about what the system is and people aren't going to see it the same way and people are going to have fanatical absolutist ideologies that they're going to try to ram through uh, and that's just – we just have to live with it. People don't need to believe that that's the way things are. I mean, I'm not making some Straussian point uh, that – Yeah, I was going to say we're, we're tiptoeing up to Strauss Well, here. no, I mean I'm not – because I'm not saying that people – there's something that people need to believe to, you know, like – survive and that we need to tell people noble lies. I think I'm going to just tell people that, you know, what's true. This is how the system is. This is how democracy is. Like, don't worry about the fact that our disagreements aren't ever going to resolve. That's not a bad thing. It's a great to live in a society where we can hash it out, keep it within the rails of the political system rather than having it spill over into, you know, violence. Like, so like if we're, if we're yelling at each other and screaming at each other and, uh, and, you know, we're, you know, not actually like forming mobs and attacking the Capitol during the, uh, you know, validation of election results, then we're doing okay. If we start fucking, you know, attacking the Capitol while the election's being certified, then that's bad. And the system will fucking crash if 
people keep doing it. Um, and I think you can just tell people that. Um, and, and, and can you though? Cause what, I mean, one of the things that polls are always finding, uh, well, this is interesting. It's not actually true across parties, but you know, sort of legendarily, one of the things that Democrats are democratic voters in particular on surveys and polls will tell you, Oh, I hate all the fighting. And I hear this like from normie friends too, like non-political friends like just all the fighting and squabbling it just seemed just something about it bugs people and they wish people could just like be more cooperative and get along better so like telling people like no that fighting and squabbling that's so like fingernails on a chalkboard for you that's just it forever like that's that's our life can you really tell people that and make them happy like I don't know that people like that state of affairs. I don't, I don't think people like it, but the, here's the thing. We were talking about political ignorance before. Like most people aren't going to listen. Um, they're going to watch ESPN um, and and they're going to watch Ohio State like, you know, and get really depressed when they like lose or something. But like, they're, so they're not going to hear us and that's fine. Um, that's part of it too. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, thanks for this uh, discussion. It was we'll, a delight. We'll thanks. Sometime. Yeah, let's do it again. Awesome. All right, See you take well. care, man.